I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is a question about whether when COVID has settled down and Vladimir Putin is watching the Russian equivalent of clueless in a retirement home somewhere, that the world will go back to normal after all of that. And that means more international trade, more just-in-time supply chains, and less protectionism and localism that some, like Steve Keen, are calling for. So today, I relay some of the arguments made by the FT columnist Martin Wolf last week in an article called The Big Mistakes of the Anti-Globalizers. He says this emerging group are overstating the merits of self-sufficiency. So let's get Steve's take on that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. And my name is Phil Dobby, of course, but you probably know that after five years and 280 episodes or so. Uh, Look, we've talked a bit this year about whether the supply chain problems post-COVID and the impact of the war in Ukraine and what that's having on fuel and uh, energy supplies, whether the learning will be less globalisation, shorter supply chains, more self-sufficiency, more food and energy security. It sounds logical, doesn't it? Although it also sounds very expensive. And does that mean less productive? So what prompted me going down this road again was I was reading an article in the FT last week, an opinion piece by Martin Wolf, who I'm sure you don't agree with on lots of things, but I'm sure you also agree that he's, he is quite a good thinker. And he points to, you know, his, his argument is, no, we are going to, you know, jump back to where we were just because we have seen so many benefits from, from global trade. Uh, it would be hard to move away from all of that. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, I do like Martin, and uh, he is he's a pretty open-minded uh, person who, you know, he generally sticks inside the uh, the mainstream envelope, but he's open-minded to other other views. But on this one, I disagree with him. Mm. I think, uh, and it, it's it's very hard for people to, to imagine there's a break where things are never the same as they were before. And I think this is partly what's going on here, that, uh, you know, those advantages were so great, we uh, we have to go get back to them. But they depend upon conditions that right. no longer apply. Because his point is, between 1980 and 2018 when we saw global merchandise trade increase significantly as a percentage of DDP, virtually all countries are better off as a result of that. Global inequality declined, he says, the share of the world's population in extreme poverty fell from 42% in 1981 to just 8.6% in 2018. So he reckons those numbers speak for themselves. I mean, that is, when you look at it like that, I mean, that period has been an amazing success story, and we can put that down to global trade, can't we? It's a, it's a, global, it's a globalised thing. I actually first wrote about this, I think, in 1980. 1979, uh, looking at the growth of, uh, of globalised production, and I actually built a little mathematical model of it for a conference I ran uh, called Trade to Whose Advantage, which uh, had the best cartoon cover for a conference ever, which was done by Patrick Cook. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a, that in a sec. He was a famous Australian satirical cartoonist. Um, but what uh, I looked at was in, in the mathematical model I did that probably nobody has read uh, is that you, if you look at what actually profits out of it, it's going to be capitalists in the first world, capitalists in the third world, and workers in the third world. But workers in the first world will not do so well. And and that is really the, the subtext of all of this. So what Martin is looking at and giving that comment about 
about the uh, decline in inequality. That's the decline in inequality between countries. So the level of difference between the salary of a Chinese worker and the salary of an American worker has fallen quite substantially. But if you look within countries, what you find is actually, uh, in, in certainly in the first world, an amplification of inequality. So the profits of the uh, of, of capitalists, in particularly in America, have risen far faster than the wages of workers in America, and the nature of work has also changed in America. So this is a large part of why people are so dissatisfied and why they voted for Trump in 2016. So I mean, on that he points to uh, Elhanan T- uh, Heltman, who wrote a book, Globalization and Inequality. He's a professor of international trade at Harvard. And, uh, you know, he addresses this idea that, you know, we, we're seeing inequality in richer countries as a result of all of this. But, you know, because of that point you, you, you just made, that we might do all the smart stuff in the rich countries, but all the poor jobs uh, get shipped off overseas. Uh, the argument there is, well, that might be partially because of globalization, but it's largely because of the uh, technological developments that so that, that are favoring highly skilled workers. So automation, for example, you know, e- even if we didn't have international trade and we just bought everything on shore, those lower paid jobs, obviously, would get done by machines uh, if we could. So we'd still have that inequality in richer countries because it's the, you know, the, the skilled jobs are the ones that are paying. Yeah, there's a typical micro thinking by by a mainstream economist. Uh, yes, that there 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 is that development over time. That low wage, you know, the, the, the less skill you have, the less bargaining power you've got, definitely. Um, but when you take a look at the macro dynamics, what you have is a boost. You have a decline in demand, a decline in aggregate demand in the first world, because you have. Uh, Workers getting being sacked, they go from being employed to unemployed, or employed in high wage positions to to, to low wage. And there's a, there's also an issue there, of course, about just how many skilled workers there are left in America now, given given that uh, uh, transition to globalized production. Uh, but but there is the there there is a decline which would have happened to some extent anyway, but it would have happened inside the confines of one market, and you would have had all the aggregate demand effects would have been contained inside that one market. Instead, what you had is a shipping of aggregate demand off to the third world at the expense of the first. Now that's not a bad thing. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm saying that uh, uh, you know if you, if you look at what is China's actually done out of that, it's been an incredible increase in the welfare levels of something of the order of a, certainly a, a half a billion to a billion people. The population of China is what 1.4 billion, but the the increase in the in the standard of living in India, in China is gobsmacking. When you've had the chances I did to compare it uh, pre the um, globalisation to post globalisation, so if you look at the global level, then yes, it has been a reason for a dramatic skill transfer and a rise in living standards uh, in 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 parts of the third world. But for the workers back in the first world, they got screwed. They they they, they lost not only did they lose their high school jobs, they went from high school to low school jobs. They also lost their bargaining power. And that's what is really leading to the level of discontent you can find in Western nations because... Right, because they lost their bargaining power because it's it's not you against the person next door, it's you against the person on the other side of the world who's going to do yeah, it cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And but, that's where people, the racism but, I've seen has come from as well. Right, but I mean, but you know, that, that argument that if we did try and bring those those jobs back on shore as Donald Trump was trying to do, um, you know, are we going to find that the, the, the answer to them being too expensive is that we will just automate it? So are oh, we actually... Well, they, does it really make any difference whether it's onshore or offshore? If it's onshore, we'll probably replace you with a machine anyway. Well, in fact, a fair bit of the creativity of capitalism comes out of the desire of capitalists to replace workers with machinery. 
yeah. uh, to reduce the cost. I mean, that's the classic instance of the, the spinning jenny, uh, way, way back in the very early days of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, again, this is something when you look at the data, that the rate of growth of the uh, global economy pre-globalization was higher than post-globalization, substantially so. Not the only issue, of course, there's been all the changes in, in the uh, level of wealth going to the financial sector as well, which is the focus of my work on, on Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. Mm. But fundamentally, um, this is one of the reasons why you don't have to innovate so quickly, uh, because you can use much, much lower wage, wage workers and still make that profit margin. Right, but if you bought it onshore, uh, then you'd be replacing workers anyway by machine, so they wouldn't be any better off. Okay, you might see that, that innovation. So the rich country would be better off. The poor country hasn't got people yeah. employed now in, in those in those other jobs. So, so that job of globally trying to uh, bridge that income divide uh, doesn't exist anymore. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, 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 class, the classic that I ever got about that, I, mean, I think I've told you several times, was when I was in China for the, on, the, on a trip taking a group of Australian journalists for a seminar with Chinese journalists. At the end, we ended up in the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone when it, the concrete was being laid by, by CSR, as it happens. Literally, there was the Free Trade Zone. It was just a, you know, a, a, a development site, and it was literally putting the concrete down for the roads and the building structures and so on. And we had, a, I must say, a wonderful, wonderful reception by the uh, by, the chief engineer from CS- CSR and his uh, uh, amazingly sociable uh, Northern Beaches wife has had a wonderful Aussie barbecue in the bottom of uh, bottom of China, but we had explained to us by the managers of the of the of the free trade zone that what they were doing was was giving this offer of you know, very low uh, wage costs and very low uh, environmental standards and capital costs and so on as well to any American firm that would move its production from America to China. But they also required that company to have a Chinese partner who, regardless of financial circumstances, within five years had to own half the company. Now, if you sit down... <laughs> Americans aren't known for their spontaneous generosity, not not, um, not American corporations anyway. So what on earth are they getting if they're willing to give up half the profits? And that's that's the scale of the drop in wage costs they were facing. It was more profitable for them to give over half the profits from the operations in China than mm. to have those operations onshore in America. And that's the scale of the transfer they were looking at. Right. And we're sort of paying for that now, aren't we? Because uh, we've seen the impact of, uh, you know, of, of China sneezing and uh, the rest of the world catching the cold, or the rest of the world catching COVID. Uh, maybe it did start there, but whatever the uh, whatever the origins of it, uh, you know, the consequences of it have been quite pronounced because of this world trade. And even now, you know, China is dragging its heels because of all the lockdowns yeah. that they're seeing. The United States, out of anyone on the planet, probably is the least dependent on on international trade, and yet they've still been feeling the consequences of it. So, um, so you know, even with I think what twenty percent of their GDP is dependent on on international trade. So we're we saying there should be less, and it, and if there had been less, and if everyone else, other major nations, were were the same, would we not be seeing the same inflationary impacts that we're seeing now because of supply chain problems? Well, that's that's the thing. Globalisation has developed an incredibly fragile supply chain, and it's not just the fact that you're shipping stuff from. Um, from Asia to America. There's also the change in the nature of manufacturing from the previous buffer buffer approach, uh, where the production line went forward no matter what, and then when things got down to the other end and there were defects, they had to be sent back to be reworked. Uh, you had Deming's brilliant idea of just-in-time manufacturing, uh, which said that you any, any production line, when it's established, uh, can be stopped 
by any worker at any point. And then at that point, you find out what's causing the problems and you solve them and then the line restarts. And this is a, a brilliant approach. It's, it's the way you should, you should construct, you should manufacture things. But what it meant was you could also therefore deal with incredibly small stocks. So rather than having huge buffers of, uh, of goods for going into a factory and rather than having the, the cycling back of stuff which had been done and actually badly manufactured and needed to be reworked and so on and all the extra facilities you need for that, you had a very lean system uh, where you relied upon your suppliers to deliver your inputs just in time. Now that worked fine and we extended it right up to the stage of the 130 countries involved in making the components of the iPhone, but then one of mm. them falls over. And then bang, it is incredibly fragile. Right. and But that could happen domestically as well, couldn't it? We'd, we'd, we've got a train strike. We're likely to have a teacher's strike. We're, you know, we, we are going through a, a summer of discontent in the, in the UK. And, you know, mm. we had the three-day week in the 1970s caused by the miners' strike as well. If you, you know, arguably, if you were more dependent on international trade, you could say, well, okay, you can't drive, you know, you can't, railway lines are pretty fixed in the country, but, you know, other stuff, you can say, well, okay, we're going to import it from elsewhere. If if you're going to go on strike or you're going to negotiate for higher wages and we can get it cheaper, we're going to do that. And and in other words, it's a way of reducing the bargaining power of workers, which is Mm. pretty much what I'm saying. And that Mm. bargaining power is what gives workers the chance to have a decent income. And that's been gone. So one of the main reasons we've seen is flatlining of of, uh, the wage share of GDP in the West over the last 40 years is because of the outsourcing and the fact that you can say, we don't need to worry about you going on strike. You don't have any industrial power. Uh, we've shifted the industrial power to the, to the, to the, uh, to the third world. So it's, uh, but the question, back to Martin's, Martin's really real question, can you rebuild that system? Now, one of the things which has gone is if you're looking for a low wage country, you're not going to be looking at China anymore. Yeah, uh, and in fact, a lot of the corporations are moving offshore from China to Vietnam at the moment, uh, where Vietnam is copying the similar policies to China. And what you get is this footloose capitalism that tries to find the cheapest workers anywhere and then sell back to the first world. But in doing that, what they're undermining is the aggregate demand of the first world. You you don't longer have you have you have a larger margin, but not the same buying power of the market you're selling into. So this thing ends up white anting itself, and this is partly why we've had the low growth because there's low aggregate demand caused by outsourcing. So are you saying then if we became more self-sufficient, we'd actually become more efficient? So, uh, you know, it, because we would have uh, all this investment in technology locally, so we'd see our GDP grow, or are we saying, well, no, our GDP might not grow as fast, but we'll have uh, a less of an income discrepancy locally, and obviously we get all the food security and energy security. Uh, that means we're less uh, dependent on, on foreign countries, and uh, therefore uh, we don't hit problems like we've been seeing with the war and uh, COVID, for example. Well, what, what I'm saying is the main reason for it was nothing to do with efficiency. It was all about workers' bargaining power. And it was very effective in undermining it. Now, if you bring those those tasks back on shore, then you have the aggregate employment issue of you know, how much employment you're going to need. But you also have an investment uh, stimulus. So you're going to have to build factories that are going to be providing work, that work uh, you know, in your first world countries rather than shipping it across uh, in ships that are now you know, COVID-afflicted and other supply chain issues afflicted. So it, it does give you a, a boost to demand to rebuild the manufacturing locally. And again, with investment being, if, you, if you're producing in your country, 
Uh, if, if you, then, then you're investing in your country, then you have that positive feedback from investment, profit to investment and so on. Again, you've outsourced that, so you bring it back on shore and you know, leaving out yeah, the, usual, the usual, the global warming issues, uh, that is going to reduce your rate of growth. Right, but I mean, we can talk about big countries in this way, but small countries, they can't be self-sufficient, like Switzerland, for example, a lot of countries in Africa, for example, uh, emerging nations. Yeah, they, 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 yeah, so, I mean, what you're talking about, I think it really only applies to the big ones. Yeah, then there are countries which are which are, which are too small to... I know, like, uh, I think I was in Denmark uh, last week. I think there were 10 million people. And, there's, of course, there's no car manufacturer in Denmark, and there never could be. But what, that's why you have to have regional... I think, even where do you manufacture your vehicles? You manufacture them in, in Japan and ship them to a, to Europe or in China and ship them to Europe, or do you manufacture them in Europe itself? And... Uh, and it, it's a question of the scale, uh, and you can get that scale to some extent with regional alliances, which, of course, what the, that's the positive side of what the European Union is. Uh, but, yeah, there are things like you know, the, the weirdest thing of all, of course, is, uh, is computer chips, where most of them are made in Taiwan, something over half the world's computer chips in one country, one tiny country. So um, it, 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 again, is an issue of scale and specialisation. Um, but... Uh, you know, in, in, in most parts of the world, you can establish most of the factories you need on a, on a regional basis. And you, what you have to look at is the scale: is how how large a market do you need before the uh, the economies of scale in terms of the scale of the factory you're building versus the market you're selling into, uh, where that cuts out. And of course, it's much much higher for uh, for vehicles and for computer parts than it would be for food, for example. But whichever level you look at it, uh, I mean, whether it's on a global scale or regional scale or an individual country scale, you're always going to have inequality, aren't you? So, for example, if we, if we look at the European oh, level, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we say, well, okay, we're going to be self-sufficient, we're going to have uh, car plants in, in Germany and in Italy uh, and uh, Greece, yes, yeah, still produce the olives, thanks. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, uh, you, you're going to get that, you know, the countries at the periphery are going to be less well off than the countries at the centre, the core countries like Germany and France. Which, which is where you, have, you should be which, having fiscal transfers, which, of course, the, the European Union doesn't have. So yeah, well, that's one of the weaknesses, mm. of course. So that's so, not a trading block, then. That's going one step further, isn't yeah, it? That's, that's, almost, the, that's the mistake they made. It, sh- it, it should be a, a, a common... Well, it should be a common currency as America is, and then you have fiscal transfers making up for those problems where, you know, Alabama is... Uh, or, or let's say Tennessee uh, is poorer than California, and there are then fiscal transfer people accept because you're able to move, and you know it's a cohesive society, which of course doesn't apply. And I hadn't talked about a common currency. I was just talking about it as a trading block. But I mean, do we do we do we need to yeah. have a common currency? Because I mean, no, is no, it, you don't. <laughs> so I mean, so yes, because Greece could be saying, well, okay, within this trading block, we're going to produce stuff which we can do cheaper. Uh, than than the rest of the country, and it would uh, the the rest of the region, and hopefully would it would find its level. But would they be left because they are cheap? Would they, would they become the China? You know, they become the cheaper labour force, uh, and they don't have that room to grow. Uh, well, that, as I say, it's, it's a, like creating a regional problem for what is a global issue currently. But that that is partly what's happening with a lot of production in in, in, in the ex Soviet states like Romania these days, and there's a lot of mm. outsourcing. So they've got all these these issues. But like it, it, Martin's point was to say we can go back to globalisation. There's so many benefits out of it. Um, partly, the, the more it succeeds, the less the, the less the wage differential is there to make it feasible in the first place to exploit those differences. So that's that's you know you, you said if you try to re 
establish globalisation, it wouldn't be Chinese workers you're doing it with in the first place. And then the other issue is, and because completely left out of that uh, article so far as I saw, uh, is any consideration of the environmental impact. The, the yes, you had lower costs, of course, in labour, but you had to ship stuff across oceans. So we had an increase in the uh, amount of diesel-fuelled uh, ships uh, traversing the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans, and they are actually a major contributor to carbon. Now, if, if we find that we simply can't allow that anymore, then you say, well, okay, that's no, no more uh, you know, a dramatic fall in, in, in global trade, and therefore being able to produce domestically becomes far more important. But if you've got, if you if we accept the fact that you know there will always be countries that can't be self-sufficient because they're too small, then you you, you are going to need some form of uh, of international. You trade. are. So you're going to need you you're going to need you a are. world trade organization. You're going to need to set a, a a, a, a set of rules that can govern how that trade happens and you know that was one of uh, Martin Wolf's points that you know if, if you unilaterally decide you're going to take back control how are you going to do that without negotiating with with the other parties you almost need to follow those WTO rules or or disband the World Trade Organization uh, and you know and where does where does that leave you you know his, his point is we need predictable policies to ensure that trade continues to operate efficiently so we need those international agreements because there will always be countries that need that can't be self-sufficient. So they're always going to need international trade. Yeah, but I think this this again is where the neoclassical hang up on specialisation versus investment. Uh, they believe that all gains come from trade, which is specialisation. And in fact, when you mm. look at it, first of all, the countries that are exporting to each other are not specialising. They are the, the, the successful countries, the ones with the, with the general capacity to produce virtually everything. And this is why I've come back to my Patrick Cook cartoon, why I enjoyed it so much from my book, Trade to Whose Advantage. Uh, it had uh, it had a Chinese uh, businessman and an Australian businessman both trying to sell each other a stuffed kangaroo. Very cute, okay? <laughs> and uh, the idea being that, look, you've got the you know, production is occurring, the same stuff is being made everywhere. Um, and, and when you look actually like a country like Germany, it exports everything. Uh, if it was specialising, you'd see it having a range of you know, lower-skilled industries that it couldn't manufacture, like, for example, making nuclear stations at power stations at one end of the spectrum, making nails at the other. You look at what it exports, it exports everything, including nails. It has a diversified industrial structure. So the real secret to Germany's uh, success is not trade and specialisation, it's investment and innovation. And that's, again, this whole neoclassical focus on trade and globalisation is just downplaying what actually works in capitalism, which is investment. Right. But to get that investment and to make it, uh, make it work, make the, the production of these goods in first world countries work uh, when you are competing against the lower costs of, of, of labour and production uh, in other parts of the world, you are going to need to put up some, some form of tariff on you. And, and the idea of introducing tariffs is surely going to increase, maybe only for a short period of time, but it, it's going to be inflationary. It's going to push up the price of goods. Well, I mean, again, there's the whole argument about uh, tariffs. I mean, the, uh, one of my favourite mainstream economists, a guy called Danny Roddick, and uh, Danny does this t- t- terrible thing, according to neoclassical economists. He actually looks at empirical data, bastard. Wow. Uh, and what he finds... Maybe that could catch on. Country- <laughs> oh, no, no, never. No, no, not in economics. Um, but his, his, what he's found is that the country that is successfully industrialised are ones that did protect their industries at some point. Uh, and they then put pressure on their domestic manufacturers to catch up with the rest of the world. So the argument that, you know, free trade is better for everybody, no, it's not. Empirically looking at it, uh, the successful countries first of all caused that domestic investment to take place. So what they used trade as wasn't specialisation and comparative advantage, yuck, yuck, yuck. It was using trade 
trade as a as a pressure to force high levels of investment domestically, so that over time those uh, those uh, uh, industries could act on the world stage. And I remember as a kid, literally like a you know six year old uh, in Australia, having uh, sort of ridiculous arguments over Holden versus Ford as cars, and everybody laughed about Japanese cars, and nobody had ever touched a Datsun at the time. Well, ten years later. Datsun was technologically more advanced than the Ford and the and the Holden, and this is uh, what what was done in Japan and done in Korea as well. Uh, was an immense pressure on the domestic uh, capitalists to invest. And right, but, that, but that's a period of economic transition, isn't it, for a country? And uh, I mean, though that that protectionism doesn't exist to the same extent now. It's it's you know, I mean, they are playing on the international. No, they stage. don't need to. But it, yeah, but, but, it, like the, but will they need to? But will they need to again? And and, and so is that, I mean, you know, my point is is that isn't this just a short point in history? If you carried on doing it for uh, for eternity to try and protect those, but, but I guess you're saying, well, you won't need to because you'll become you don't need so, to because you, you become so yeah, efficient. You, you you've got a competitive edge. Yeah, and unless but, you put that in, you're going to. But then, get but then everyone is going yeah. to want to buy from you. So then you are in, engaging yeah. in global trade. Well, and then then what you have is like you know, people buy Korean telephones uh, these days. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is it is the countries that focus on investment that are the ones that succeed. Not the ones that focus on trade, right? But they're and succeeding because they are creating international trade, aren't they? You know, they've invested, they've no, developed. Well, they, 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 I mean, because what you're describing is a situation where the Japanese became so efficient at producing very good cars that everyone wanted to, to wanted to buy from them. It wasn't they obviously weren't producing for their domestic market because there wasn't enough of them. No, to, in, fact, in fact, they were producing for the domestic market. When you look, for example, at companies like Honda, they began as a motorcycle, as a bicycle company that no, trapped but, a motorbike. To the, but then uh, started shipping around the world. And well, it, every, it, yeah, what you can. If you can find a niche in a country like that, uh, where really, like you know, there, there there wouldn't be a market for a motorized bicycle made by Germany. Okay, you have to pull the, buy the full full motorcycle, and that's just too expensive for the Japanese buyers. So, to some extent, the demand coming from domestic side uh, meant you had a, a, a small niche which you could then develop over time. So, you went from you know, a, a motor inside a bicycle frame to you know the six, Honda six fifty, and that was the beginning of the Japanese domination of the motorbike mo- motorbike industry. So, again, that the role you, you have to be looking at the role of trade. Uh, as a spike to innovation and investment, not as something which means you specialisation and get gains out of that alone. And again, that's the sort of thinking that I can see in Martin's piece. So uh, you would be one of these anti-globalists that uh, that he's talking about. So you you think? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so you think we are going to swing? Yeah, I think we're back from. Yeah, we, we, we're going to be forced to it by environmental reasons alone, and that, that's really the major fact I'm looking at. You simply can't imagine the scale of international shipping. Uh, that we have at the moment. Mm. Once we once we realise we've got to stop for calming into the air. To do that, I mean, you'd have to have spent a, you know a twenty year period tooling up our international shipping to mean that they can you know they have you know wind powered and and. Uh, you know, probably for sure. you know, hydrogen-powered shipping. Uh, you know, that's a 20-year investment program. It ain't going to happen overnight. So the belief you can go back to it ain't just not going to ha- not going to be true. But can you become more protectionist, uh, whether it involves uh, some form of barrier or not? Can you become uh, more domestically focused uh, in, in, when we've got you know this growth of the digital economy? I mean, I, either I buy something digitally. Uh, which I use, which is you know a digital product or even physical product. I might buy them online in a separate country and have it dispatched locally. I mean, borders are becoming blurred because of this new digital economy. Is it realistic to say, well, actually, we can uh, we can bring jobs back home and uh, 
take control of our own economy uh, in, in this global world because of the internet. It's just broken things open for us. It, it has, um, but it's still, I mean, for example, I, I've got the, I was talking about buying a Tesla when I was in, in, in Denmark two weeks ago, and I said, well, don't, don't make sure you don't buy it here because we have a tax on motor vehicles of 180%. Now, they're not protecting the domestic industry. They don't have one, but this is their little, little, little tax work. Um, so you you can still uh, use barriers like that or uh, you use limitations on what can be brought in from overseas. You, you, you face it no matter what. You can't have the car in the country for more than a month and then you've got to pay those fees. So it, it, I'm not arguing as much in favour of the, 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 the tariff and trade and tariff barriers, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying that what actually works in in growth over time is investment and this will force us into investment for domestic for domestic reasons and once you do it um, then a lot of the advantages of the, the globalised supply chain become they're so dependent upon it being uh, not disturbed that when you find when you expect regular disturbances the costs are just too high mm. and then coming back to domestic production makes more sense so the first world uh, countries attract all of the investment because they've got the markets there they've got the uh, the the efficiency in their economy that you know, tra- attracts investors developing nations uh, all of a sudden lose their ability to to attract their investment because why why would you uh, and so they're not going to be uh, generating very much at all uh, locally. They don't have the sophistication of the economy that the first world's got. So what happens to those countries? Well, that's where, I mean, China's already out of that particular trap because they've not got such a huge domestic market and uh, and they're you know, industrially more than competitive with the West, so they're not going to be the ones who suffer out of that. But yeah, the country that haven't yet gone up the industrialization chain are going to be uh, in, in more trouble because they can't use... Uh, you know, a trade market as a way of getting a boost to their domestic demand, and uh, and that'll be that'll be uh, more problematic. But it will also force them back to looking at investment again, rather than specialisation. And as I said, that's that's the real secret of, of successful development over time. It's industrialisation. It's not uh, not the, not trade and specialisation. So they actually could find that even without the uh, uh, domestic. Uh, without without the booster demand from overseas sales, they could actually do as better or better than they're doing now by focusing upon developing their industrial structure. No, but where's the money going to come from that to, to do that? They can create it. This they can create. The only thing you need foreign money is for for buying foreign imports, like energy. And again, if you mm. you haven't got the money, then that's actually a, a stimulus to building your. Uh, your production facilities domestically. Don't bear in mind that the, the probably the best example of that uh, in the last 20 years is the American rocket industry, courtesy of the fact they uh, could not afford Russian rockets. Right, but again, isn't it just that it's the same argument on income discrepancy and whether it's applied at a local or an international level? So if we're saying at the at the local level within our own country that if we're not employing people locally uh, in, on low-income jobs, then they don't have the, the spending power to be able to buy more. So your the amount that you produce and sell within the country is being restrained because there's just not enough purchasing power. Isn't it the same uh, with developing nations? So developing nations, uh, all of a sudden, are not attracting the investment and are not producing stuff as much. Therefore, they haven't got the income to buy stuff. So even if you are like Japan, for example, producing lots of cars, the amount of cars you can sell is going to be restrained by the fact that developing nations can't afford to buy them because they haven't got enough people in jobs with money. So doesn't that mean globally uh, international trade is less efficient if you take the aggregate of all the countries on the planet? Yeah, quite possibly. But I, th- I, think, I think what's, I mean, the, the focus on efficiency, that to, to me, what matters now is sustainability. And uh, in, in that front, 
what really matters is can you produce the most important uh, commodities, the, the basic foodstuffs, uh, and, and then transportation. Uh, can you just produce those domestically? And if you can't, you're going to be in deep doo-doo, whether you're a, domestic, a developed country or a, a developing country or a so-called development like uh, the UK, which imports, what, 40% of its food. So when we see this, um, you know, the, the, the crunch to globalisation coming from climate change, uh, then the more the more you produce what you fundamentally need at the local level, the better off you're going to be. But this is, a, if we were to go to a stage where we've got less globalization, more localization, I mean, that is an, an enormous transition. I mean, that's the sort of thing that takes decades, isn't it? And, and, and it is going to be expensive. It's going to be expensive in terms of the amount of investment that is required, uh, but also in terms of rising prices, because we are going to go through this period where it is less efficient to produce locally than it is to import cheaper goods that have been produced with cheaper labor from overseas. Yeah, but also you're going to, you're going to see... Uh uh, you know, technological development to use more machinery than using labour to reduce those costs. Uh, but at the same time, it's, this is all in the context of a... But decades. Well, yeah, but, but it's, it's also in the context of uh, what's going to have to happen to demand if we uh, you know, start seeing serious climate impacts and are, are forced to reduce demand. Then a whole range of commodities which we're currently, you know, wasting our money on uh, will suddenly become things that are just uh, not worth producing. And you're going to get a, a decline in the complexity of economies and more of a focus upon production of basic commodities. And that's what you're going to have to get right to avoid social breakdown in your own country. Right, and there's got Fundamentally, food, food is absolutely essential, of course, in that. And point. there's got to be some sort of pricing model that's going to drive that, isn't there? That, you know, that is going to make it uh, prohibitively expensive to start uh, buying stuff from overseas. Uh, where goods might be, you know, where we're producing too many, using too many resources for us to to satisfy consumption levels that are too high. There's got to be some sort of global pricing initiative to try and bring that uh, that level of production down, surely. Yeah, well, I think I've got, we've, we've got a price on the cost of carbon. And I don't mean you know, stupid stuff the neoclassicals do about a carbon price or a carbon tax. We have to have to legitimately, we're uh, you know, using whatever mechanism we can, drastically reduce our carbon consumption as a first step. It certainly isn't the last step because it isn't just carbon we're dumping into the environment, it's everything else we're dumping as well. And we're going to see just how much damage we're doing to the biosphere in the next 15 or so years. And we have to reduce that for survival. So in that sense, you know, that, that I did globalisation to me is not compatible uh, with mm. a society focused upon survival um, and, and pulling ourselves back within um, planetary limits. Uh, Globalisation is a process which completely ignored the existence of, of uh, planetary limits and we're hitting them and that's why I can't see any return to the, the golden age of globalisation as Martin expects. Right. So uh, j just finally, I mean, we, we, we've touched on I'm still not sure I've got a, a clear understanding of how it's going to work out though. If, if, if the first world really does say, well, we are going to become much more protective, we're going to be much more domestically focused, those smaller third world developing countries... Are, are going to suffer as, re, as a result but of they that. also might be more sufficient in their fundamental needs and this is the, the thing which I'd like one reason I've got a, a place in in, in, in Thailand uh, because well, they might be self-sufficient because they're poor yeah well, I mean, you're, like, you're, you're not, you're, well we're saving the planet by being destitute well, not just that you're also you're also more robust because you're closer to the way things are actually made and the further you are removed from where stuff is actually manufactured the more fragile you are in this environment right, so we're saying don't become developed 
In effect. Well, don't be, don't become overdeveloped, which most of the West definitely is. Mm. It's an interesting one. We could we perhaps could explore that in another podcast. We've run out of time today. Mm. Interesting, mm. as always, Steve. Uh, we'll catch you again next week. Okay, mate. Yep. And of course, when we talked about international trade, there was always the war argument as well, wasn't there? We're less likely to have wars if we depend on each other for trade. But then, as we've seen, uh, that can also be part of the problem because we don't want to impose too many sanctions on Putin because we depend on Russia so much for energy. So that's that argument dispelled, isn't it? Now, next week, central banks are committed to using monetary policy to solve the inflation problem. Will it work? Well, Steve says not and fears that we'll be left with higher interest rates and higher inflation at the end of it. We'll look at how and why next week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.